I don't want to do this, but I'm going to finish Luke chapter 15, I think. I stopped, I believe, at verses 31 and 32, where the father has a closing statement to the elder son. But again, you know, Pharisees and scribes are witnesses hearing it. Tax collectors and sinners are there. Disciples are there. And then now we get to be there through the written word to hear what this, the Lord Jesus says about this father's closing statement toward his son. The father responds in a way unexpected in the first century. And he said to him, son, you're always with me and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Now notice that's the end of verse 32. What we don't have at the, this part of the parable, we had it in the first two parts, we don't have some, somebody being found and then brought back to the house of God and the church of God and rejoicing. We don't have that. We're just left with the father and the older brother outside. And it ends. No closure to it. I think that ought to teach us this. There is closure to it in one sense. I mean, we get it if we get, we're following uh, the passage correctly. Jesus is pointing out to the Pharisees that they are signified by these older brother, by this older brother. There's never any uh, reconciliation between the older brother and the father. Uh, the, the, the first century Jews, uh, a, a lot of them, a small remnant believed, but most of them did not. And especially the leaders are accused of uh, crucifying the Lord of glory. And he said to him, son, you're always with me and all that I have is yours. This is probably best understood in light of the Pharisees and scribes being teachers of the law and members of the old covenant nation of Israel. Son, all that I have is yours. In one sense, we could say ancient Israel was God's special covenant nation. They had privileges that other nations did not. They had the oracles of God, the Old Testament. They had the covenants of promise, the covenants that carried within them the promise of the Messiah. That was unique to Israel. Listen to Romans uh, 9, 3 through 5. Paul says this, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ. For my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption. Okay? So there is, a, they have a national adoption. So each individual within the nation is, an, is covenantally adopted. That doesn't mean they're soteriologically or savingly adopted. There's a distinction to be made there between national adoption of ancient Israel and redemptive adoption giving the right to become sons of God, John 1.12. To whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. Jesus, uh, Paul is talking about unbelieving Israel in the first century there. Okay, So I think it's appropriate in this parable that 
The son, the father is calling this guy son. In the history of redemption, these Pharisees and scribes had great privileges. The national adoption of ancient Israel is one of the privileges they possessed. So they could be called son, and they were here. They had privileges great and privileges special, one of them being a national adoption that secured the salvation of no one. So even though he calls him son, doesn't mean he's a saved son, he's lost. But notice this verse 32. It was right, the old King James says, it was meet, M-E-E-T, appropriate. It was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. In other words, Jesus is saying, this is my defense for receiving sinners and eating with them. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am in the business of seeking and saving the lost. I bring sinners to God all cleaned up. I bring sinners into God's house, reconciled, pardoned, forgiven. You, too, are sinners in need of repentance. What will you do? Something like that. Here's J.C. Ryle. Whatever the elder son might say, he could not deny these two great facts. His brother, who a short time ago had been, had, had been one as dead, was alive again. He was lost. He was now found. Before these facts, all envious and murmuring feelings ought to go down. It was meet. It was appropriate to make merry and be glad. The application of the words to the case of our Lord's hearers is clear and plain. However much the Pharisees might murmur at him for receiving sinners, they must confess it was better for sinners to be saved than lost. But I don't think this guy was ready to say, you know what, it's better for him to be saved than lost. Okay, all right. If tax collectors and sinners were made alive unto God through his ministry, through Christ's ministry, the Pharisees, if they had a right spirit, would have been glad. Instead of finding fault, they would have been thankful. Instead of murmuring, they would have rejoiced. I think Mr. Ryle is exactly right. The Pharisees and scribes were angry because they believed their works argued favor with God. They were angry, self-righteous, legal preachers and livers. By the way, self-righteous people are rarely joyful, content people. Jesus strikes a blow at works-based favor with God. He takes them out at the knees for all to see. Do not base your eternal well-being on your own good works. And if you're doing it, stop it right now. This is the uh, distinctive, one of the distinctive doctrines of Christianity. All man-made religions are merit-oriented, works-based. They say things like this, do this and live. The gospel of Christianity says, believe this and live. Man's religion says do, but God's says, what's the next word? Done. Man's religions say, we must work our way up to God, 
Christianity says God has come down to us in Jesus Christ to bring us up to God. John Gill says, and so the parable is concluded. The elder brother being silenced and having nothing to say against such strong reasoning. The ending is kind of abrupt, and I think it's for shock factor. The lesson for us, are there any lessons for us? I think there are a lot. Matter of fact, next week I might just preach two sermons on lessons from Jesus' parable in Luke 15. That sounds good to me. Uh, the reason why it sounds really good to me, because I can see in my, on my computer screen, I actually, have, I actually have a bunch of practical applications observations listed that I haven't preached yet, and it'll save me a lot of time, because next week I'm really busy with other things that are more important than preaching sermons to you. Oops. The most important thing I do is not teach at the seminary. The most important thing I do is what I'm doing right now, is preaching the word to you. What are any lessons for us? Yeah. I think we should be thankful for the gospel. I mean, you read Luke 15, and if even, let's say, 75% of my interpretations were right, okay, let's say 85, um, 65, half of them, it still should make us go, wow, I was in the far country. We all have our own stories about the far country, okay? I was in the field as a self-righteous one, or I was in the far country as one totally ignorant of any sense of deep conviction for sin. Every once in a while I felt bad about doing things here and there, but nothing deep and abiding. And then suddenly all I could see was my filth and guilt and mire and ugliness. And then maybe for a while you had to stew around in that in the muck of that stuff. And then at some point, there was relief. And it wasn't take two tablets, you know, the Ten Commandments. It was take one Savior, Jesus. Uh, the gospel, as an old friend of mine used to say. Uh, the remedy, the cure for all our maladies is what? Do better. Christianity with grit. Or... The girls already know the answer, Jesus, huh? Or him, or all in all. It's him, uh, or I die. You know, wash me, Savior, or I die. It's his righteousness. It's his cleansing blood. It's his power to overcome my, that remaining sin that's still in me. It's all about him. It's not about us. And the, remember, the, uh, the, uh, the, the meal was in honor not of the found, but the finder. Remember I, I said that a couple times? Who are they honoring here? It was for his glory. There's a line in Psalm 23 about that. This bringing sinners into the house of God and the celebration is, 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 is the creaturely honor and praise given to God for finding us in our sins, forgiving us of our sins, imputing his son's righteousness to our cause, and empowering us to live gratefully for him. So I think there's a lot of lessons for us, and maybe next week we'll do two sermons on, uh, that will let me say everything I had, haven't said that I wanted to say. Um,
and hopefully it will be helpful. So with that, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for Luke 15, a wonderful passage. Thank you for the genius and the holiness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you how he can speak simple words that you know are culturally uh, far from us, and yet just with a little work, we can, we can make sense of it, and yet they're full of spiritual and theological meaning. Thank you for what we call parables and and metaphors and the use of them. And thank you for your word that we're not left all to ourselves to have this narrow scoped interpretation of Luke 15, but we have the freedom and the liberty to allow other portions of the written word of God to inform and instruct us on on what these things mean in their fullness. We ask your blessings now as we want to rejoice together in the fact that the incarnation took place that blood was assumed, that blood was shed for the remission of our sins. Now bless, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.